need to check birth certificates on a couple of them, but um, never seen a youth with that much facial hair. Um, Luke 17. Now, I got to be honest with you, this is not the most pick me up of all messages. This is about the end, the end times, and having the focus on realizing that the end is coming. Now, it'd be great for us if we could all sit in some little cocoon in some little house and just pretend the world wasn't falling apart around us. But when you read and study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you see that the end is coming. And with that being said, Jesus here in Luke 17 talks about that and talks about what our mindset and what our focus is supposed to be concerning that. With that being said, let's jump right into it. Luke 17, verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Here's the classic question that comes up, verse 20. Where's the kingdom? Where's God? This is the question that's been asked probably since time began, is this seeking, this searching for God. And so the Pharisees are coming up to Jesus and they're asking, well, where is this kingdom that you keep talking about? See, the Pharisees were looking for this literal, physical kingdom. Get Rome off our backs, set up your kingdom, and let you rule and reign the world like the Messiah is supposed to. He'll do all that. And that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. That's called the millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus literally rules and reigns for a thousand years on this earth. But right now, he's saying the kingdom that I'm talking about in verse 20 and 21, it's within you. It's among you. It's right here. And we're going to get to that point in a little bit about actually how the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But the problem is people still today are still searching for this kingdom, this idea of God, and they search all over the place. What happens is verse 23. Many will say to you, look here or look there, do not go after them or follow them. This searching for God. Have you ever run into somebody who is trying to find God so hard and they forget how simple it is to find Him? We just talked a couple weeks ago about that great verse of you draw near to God and He draws near to you. God is not hiding from you. He's not. People present this God that's out in the wilderness. If you just go spend a few days by yourself in the wilderness and get rid of everything, you'll finally hear the voice of the Lord. Climb the highest mountain and cry out to the heavens and you'll hear the voice of the Lord. Look here, look there, that's where he's at. Jesus says that's not true. He says, I'm right here amongst you. Go if you will, to that first John passage. See, as we get towards the end times, and I encourage you, if you want to study this out on your own, is uh, take a look at 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3. There is this great teaching there of what it's going to be like in the end times as you're going to 1 John 2. And in the end times, as you read those passages in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you can't help but read that and think that just matches perfectly to what we're going on with right now. The world is falling apart around us. And as the world falls apart around us, this false teaching starts to take off. Jesus is warning of this. Look here, look there, that's where Jesus is. Jesus says that's not the way it is. Look here at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. Now stop right there. Little children, it's the last hour. 1 John 2, 18. It's the end. It's the end. Now, we can sit here and say how if mankind can all just get on the same page, hold hands, and sing kumbaya, we could all get along and everything would be great. 
Prophetically, that's not what happens. Once again, 2 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4, the latter times you see the spiritualness, this godliness that has no root in Jesus Christ, and you see the world falling apart. And then this is where the Antichrist comes on the scene. Now, this is not an end times teaching, but we do need to share a couple points here. There's the Antichrist that's going to come. Now, my new King James here in 1 John 2 capitalizes the A, To show we're talking about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the man that raises up at the end, that literally rules the world, just the one world order. And he does that during the seven-year period called the tribulation that happens at the end. That is the Antichrist. But now, anytime someone stands up in place of Christ or against Jesus, they're a little a Antichrist, if you will. What John's talking about here in 1 John is that the Antichrist is coming, yes, but even now... There's all these false people out there that are trying to pull you away from Jesus. Look at verse 18 again. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Capital A, the one. Even now many Antichrists, small a, have come by which we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. See, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So as we live in the end times, as we live in the world falling apart, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us that guides and directs us into truth. So therefore, we don't have to worry about these false teaching antichrists coming and pulling us away because we know the truth of it. And this junk's out there. I remember even in my lifetime, how many different people have stepped up to claim that they were God, they were Jesus. You know, the book I look to for answers is always the Bible number one. When I can't find my answer in the Bible, I always go to Wikipedia next. And so, I was preparing this lesson. I said, I bet you Wikipedia has a page on false messiahs. And you know what? Wikipedia has a page on people that have claimed to be Jesus. If you want something to do this afternoon, it's a fascinating, sad read at the same time. This stuff is going on as we speak. And these people get followers. Why? Because people are looking for the Lord. They're looking for God. And they don't realize how simple it is to find Him. They're going to go to the wilderness. They're going to go to the mountaintops. They're going to follow some guy that claims to be the Messiah. And Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that's exactly what would happen. And it's happening right now in front of us. These false antichrists. But once again, look at verse 20 of 1 John 2. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. How can you know all things? How can you tell true from false? Because, even though this false teaching is out here, the Bible makes it clear that God says, I will keep you safe and protected through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Go, if you will, to John 14. John 14. See, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is within you or among you. He says that you'll have the anointing of the Holy One so you'll know all things. Let's put this together. Pharisees are asking Jesus, where's the kingdom? Jesus says the kingdom is right here. It's among you. It's within you. He says as time goes on and I die, people are going to look for me and they're going to say, go to the wilderness, go to the mountaintops, look for me. He goes, I'm not there. I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm among you. The truth is in you. Now, how can that be? Because there's an amazing thing that happens. When we get saved and we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. That's an amazing thing. And when you stop and you think about that, God actually takes presence and dwelling in you. That's unbelievable. But not just in us. Look at all the other things that happen here. John 14. There's three great chapters here. John 14, 15, 16. That are about the greatest one, two, three punch on the Holy Spirit that you can imagine. John 14, verse 16. I will pray the Father and He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's point one. Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm ascending to heaven, but as I ascend into heaven, I send the Holy Spirit down. The Holy Spirit lives in you, the Holy Spirit lives with you, and the Holy Spirit is the one that then empowers you as we go through this. Let's build on what his mission is. Look at verse 26 of John 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. The first thing you see the Holy Spirit doing is speaking truth to you. That's how you know God's plan for your life. That's how you know the scriptures. That's how you know what truth is because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Because we live in a world where people want to pull us away from the truth. Just a couple years ago, the guy put all the billboards up. The end of the world is going to happen, what, May 10th or May 11th? Now, that wasn't true. Now, how did we know that's true? Because the Bible tells us no man knows the day or the hour. Now, that doesn't take a deep theologian to know that. You read the Bible... The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. So when I see a billboard telling me the day, the Holy Spirit then says, that's not true. The Spirit of truth protects us. Watch out for us. A few years ago when the Da Vinci Code came out, this big thing of Jesus being married. People would come up and say, Jesus being married. And I would say, Jesus can't be married. Why? Because the Bible tells us Jesus already is married to us, the church. We're called the Bride of Christ. So therefore, he is married. Well, that doesn't take a deep theologian to know that. If you study out the scriptures, the spirit of truth reveals those answers. So when somebody comes up and they have something that's way off, the spirit of truth reveals. And that warning sign that this isn't right. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, lives with you. And so therefore, he teaches and brings all things to your remembrance. But not even that, even more so. Look at John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The next step is after he teaches us and brings to remembrance all things we need to know, now we get to testify of God. So when we make comments here in the message about, go out there and be a light and a witness, and you say, I can't, I say, you can The Holy Spirit lives with inside of you. He now empowers you to do the things that God is calling you to do. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Jump ahead to uh, chapter 16. Look at verse 8. And when He has come, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit's job is to speak to non-believers, telling them that there is sin in their lives that need to be dealt with through Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit empowers us to preach this message to other people. Verse 13 of John 16. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify for me, for He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So when Jesus tells me in Luke 17 that the kingdom of God is within you, it's among you, he's speaking about, obviously, Jesus being there right there talking to the Pharisees, but he's also talking about us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So when we hear about the end times coming, and then 1 John says, don't worry about it, even though there's a little antichrist around, you know all things, and I sit there and say, I don't know all things. Well, John 14, John 15, John 16 tells me I do know all things. I know the truth because I have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. Now jump back here to Luke 17. But what happens if I still miss it? I mean, have you ever had that thought? What happens if I miss something big that God wants for me? 
And I'm not picking on anybody when I say this, and, and, I, and I truly not, but I have people come up and say, what happened if I miss the rapture and I don't even know I miss it? What happened if I miss the second coming and I don't even know I miss it? What happened if I miss... We live in this fear of missing something big. Look at verse 24. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Imagine going outside in the complete dark of night, and all of a sudden a lightning bolt covers the entire sky. You can't miss it. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. These things that are going to happen, you cannot miss it. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and will show these things to you. If you're not saved, some of these future prophecies that are going to happen that we're not going to get into today, you can't miss them. We don't need to live in fear of missing what God has for us. But he also reminds us in verse 25, hey, my primary purpose is to die on the cross for the sins, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, verse 25. The primary purpose of Christ's coming was to see souls get saved and to give us grace and mercy through him. Never forget that. That's the primary thing. Now, what about this time where he's coming back? What about this time of judgment? Let's talk about this. Verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that the Lord went, excuse me, the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in that day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So what he's talking about here is this idea of judgment, and that judgment's coming. It's the end. Now, what does that do? Does that spur you on? Or is there this comfortability here? See, what he's trying to tell us here, in verses 26 through 33, these people were focused more on their lifestyle than they were on the Lord. They were more focused on just living the lives that they had and not being focused on the Savior. The Bible makes it clear that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that it took about 120 years for him to build the ark. So for 120 years, he was trying to preach. He was trying to tell people about what was going on. And what were people doing? Just planning ahead for the future. They weren't worried about judgment that's coming. Days of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were just continuing on with life, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Now think about that for an example in your life. Are you so focused on your life that you forget your Lord and Savior? And it's not that you forget Him. But right now, you've got a lot of things going on. I mean, it's really busy at work right now. And Lord, once I get through this season of work, you and me are going to be the closest that we've ever been, and we're going to go save the world. Lord, right now, it's just a tough time with the kids. Once I get through this season of life with the kids, we have so many things we're going to do for God. i got this project at home I'm going to finish up real quick. And once I get this finished up, boy, you're going to see me on fire for Jesus. You're focusing on your lifestyle rather than the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that you put your life on hold. I'm not saying call into work tomorrow and say I'm just going to serve Jesus all day. The Bible says, occupy till I come. But what we have to be careful about as Christians is we do not get so focused on this world we live in that we forget our primary purpose here. What did we just read in John 14, 15, 16? Glorify God and point people towards Jesus Christ. If you keep your focus on your lifestyle and your world, 
you're going to run into a lot of disappointment. Turn if you go to James 4. James 4. This is a great verse that I, that I go to all the time in my life to remind myself it's not about me. I have plans, I have dreams, I have visions of what I want to do. James 4 is where we're going. But it's not about what I want, it's about what the Lord wants me to do. I can sit here and plan my life and do all these things, but am I really running these things by the Lord? Is it what He wants me to do? Look at James 4. Let's start in verse 13. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Now just stop and think for a second. How often do we plan our lives and our lifestyle and then we ask God just to okay it? This is the girl I want, Lord, work it out. Lord, this is the house I want, work it out. This is the job I want, work it out. No, I'm a vapor that just appears for a little time. And instead I need to say, Lord, what is your will for me? It is not about my life. It's not about me living the what I want to live. It's about me doing what God has called me to do. See, in the time of Noah, in the time of Lot, they were so focused on just living their lives, they totally missed the judgment that was coming. We as Christians sometimes get lulled into the spiritual sleep. We come to church, we go home, we do our devotions, we talk about the Lord, we pray. But really what we're doing is just living our lives rather than stop and saying, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? One of Paul's favorite terms for himself was a bondservant, which means an under rower. What it literally means is the slaves that were at the bottom of the ship that just kept rowing the boat wherever the master told them to row. As we've joked out here a lot... We consider God the whole co-pilot thing. We see that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. That's not the way it is. I'm not on equal terms with the Lord. It's not God and me gets together and God says, James, I had this idea for your life. I want to run it by you. What do you think? Well, Lord, I don't really like that. Well, what about this one? No, I'm a vapor. I don't want to be like the days of Noah and Lot where I'm so busy selling and buying and planting and building that all of a sudden the end comes. Well, Lord, I, I, you should have told me you were coming. I did. But you were so busy focusing on your life and your lifestyle, you completely missed the Lord. And he does this great little verse, three little words, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Well, let's remember Lot's wife. Let's go to Genesis 19. Now, if you remember correctly, we went to Genesis 19 just a few weeks ago. But we focused on Lot. Now we're going to focus on Lot's wife. And in Genesis 19, a few weeks ago, we talked about Lot, how this guy was a mess. He didn't have a witness and testimony with his family. Uh, You know, when the angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah to save him, the men of the city came to Sodom and came to Lot's house and said, send out the angels that are with you so we may rape them. And Lot's great response was, well, don't rape the angels. Here are my daughters. Take them. This man was a very weak-minded man. This man had lost his witness, lost his strength. And it's really easy to pick on Lot, but yet we find out later on in the Bible, Lot was a righteous man whose soul was tormented by the sin that he had to live in. Now, we're going to talk a little bit here about the other stuff. So, we're going to pick it up around verse 12. What has happened here in verse 12 is the two angels have come, and they've come to rescue Lot and his family. Well, what's going to happen? Verse 12, Then the men said, the angels said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. 
For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Okay, that's a great lot. Go collect anybody you want, friends, family, loved ones. Tell them God is going to judge this place. Let's get out of here. Verse 14, so Lot went and spoke to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Isn't that interesting? Lot didn't have a witness to his family. Now, I don't know for sure, but I've seen Christians like this, where one week they're serious about the Lord. Oh my goodness, they're at every church service, they're at everything, they're reading every devotional, and next thing you know, God is calling them into Antarctica to be missionaries. And they're just on fire for Christ. Next week, nothing. But they're back the next week, on fire for the Lord. And then you miss them, and they come back, and it's just on again, off again. And you know what? I've seen them go witness to their friends. One week, Jesus is amazing, and it's wonderful. The next week, they're living and acting exactly like their friends are. They have no witness. So when they come and speak to their friends, their friends said, okay, yeah, today you're serious about Jesus. I saw what you were doing last week. I saw how you were living. I saw how you were acting. Lot had no witness. He comes to his family. God's going to destroy Sodom. Oh, that's a good one, Lot. That's a good one. Have you lost your witness with your friends and family because there's not a consistency in your walk with Christ? I don't mean that to pick on you. I don't mean that to attack. But I'm saying, I think one of the greatest things we can do in our walk with Christ is a consistent walk with Jesus where we're not faking it, but we're living for Him daily so people know we are serious about the Lord. This is not this on-again, off-again thing. So Lot's other daughters and sons-in-law... They don't want to come. He lost his witness. Verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are in here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered. Boy, we linger in this world, don't we? So much so that the angels, verse 16, the men took a hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and his hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. Where is the leadership Where Lot says, I will lead my family to safety. He's lingering. Now, do we not do that as Christians? Jesus is returning. But Lord, I got this remodeled home and I really want to get this done first. Because you can just hold off on the return. Jesus is returning, but I got this big project at work. And that's my focus right now, Lord. So if you just want to wait a little bit. We linger in this world. We linger into the things of the work. We linger into things that are fun. We linger into whatever. And I'm not saying that we, once again, that we don't have a good, healthy witness at work and at home. And we do not enjoy the life that God gave us. But there is an eager expectation as Christians. When God says it's time to go, we go. When God says, okay, flood's here, get on the boat, we get on the boat. When God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom, get out, I get out. I do not linger and hold on to this lifestyle and to this world that I have because it's comfortable. This is not my home. So what happened is Lot lingered. God in his mercy said, you're coming with me. Verse 17, so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not look behind you. That verse is key. It's important. Jump ahead to verse 26. His wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I always had a little bit of trouble with verse 26 sometimes. Because I always wonder why she looked back. I'm the type of kid growing up when dad would say, hey, I'm going to do some welding, don't look. Okay, I won't look, I'm looking. You know, that's the way I am. Don't stare at the sun. Why not as I stare at the sun? So 
I've always looked at Lot's wife of, okay, not to sound crass here, but if the Lord's going to totally demolish the city, I kind of want to see that. You know, can I just look behind? Now, I'm not an expert on the Hebrew language, and I don't claim to be an expert. But I read the experts who are an expert on the Hebrew language, and they said that this word look carries a totally different connotation. It's to look back longingly. It's to look back consistently, persistently. It's to linger. It's not just running away and looking back saying, Oh my goodness, he's destroying Sodom. Run. It's looking back with a longing. It's looking back with, That's my house. That's my town. That's my people. See, that's what we do spiritually. That's why we just read... Jesus said, don't run back in for your stuff. Don't hold on to your lifestyle so much that you can't drop it when God says drop it. When somebody comes up to me and says they're praying about being a missionary, and they're praying about being a missionary to go to some third world country and serve the Lord, but then they say, I don't know if I could give up the lifestyle I have here, then you're not called to that mission field. If you can't give up the lifestyle, how are you supposed to serve the Lord? You know, I really want to serve, and I really want to devote myself to this ministry, but i got all these extra things I'm doing. Well, then you're not ready to give up your lifestyle to devote it to the Lord. Lot's wife was not ready to give up Sodom. She wasn't. She looked back. She lingered. She longed. She was judged. As Christians, we got to be careful that we aren't like Lot's wife. That's why Jesus' verse is so simple. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back and long for a lifestyle that is not in line with the Lord. And too often times, we see that and we got to be careful. Two of my favorite verses, and i got them up on my fridge at home. It's Colossians 4, 5 and Ephesians 5, 16. You don't need to turn there. It's Colossians 4, 5 and Ephesians 5, 16. Depending on your translation, it says, Redeem the time or make the most of every opportunity. And I put that on my fridge to remind me. Because it's really easy for me to get caught up in my lifestyle. Okay, i got to go mow the yard. Uh, we got to get the pool set up. I have five children. I need to take care of them sometimes. You know, there's things that I need to do. And it's easy to let the lifestyle take over. Where what happens is I find myself just living a life and checking off things. Got it done, got it done, got it done. What about ministry? What about the Lord? What about this deep longing for something deeper? Redeem the time, make the most of every opportunity, and don't linger. See, Lot was in Sodom. And because Lot was in Sodom, he lost his son-in-laws. He lost, obviously, some daughters. He lost his wife. See, here's the thing. I think I can handle Sodom. I can handle it. Okay, but am I going to lose my wife? Am I going to lose my kids through it? See, we've got to be careful about that. We think we can handle things, but really, can your wife, can your kids, can your friends, can your family? Some of you are thinking, well, I'm single. I don't have to worry about that. You still have a sphere of influence. So you go to your little Sodom moment. Well, what about your friends and your family? Can they handle it? I mean, I can watch a certain movie, and I can tell myself, okay, I hear those words, don't use those words. I see those images, just ignore those images. But what happens when I bring my children along for that? Well, I say, okay, remember, don't say those words. Don't look at those images. I know we're right in the middle of Sodom right now, but you need to learn to ignore Sodom. Okay, but maybe I need to help keep my kids out of Sodom. It's a balance. It's difficult. Lot went to Sodom, placed himself in Sodom, and I bet you looking back, Lot wishes he never would have went to that city. We've got to be careful. This is a warning that God gives to us. Jump back to Luke 17. In verse 33, what are you trying to do? 
Are you trying to save your life or lose your life? Now, we're not talking being a martyr. We're talking your life, your lifestyle, who you are. I want to be saved, but I want to live my life the way I live it. Then you're not ready to lose your life. Because we're willing and ready to give everything up for the Lord. Remember Lot's wife. We need to be able to let go of the Sodom in our life and say, I'm willing to let that go. Life is short. And really what he's trying to say here in verses 27 through 33, judgment is sure. Are we ready for this? Verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in bed, in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two men, will, women will be grinding together. This, the one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, "Where, Lord?" So he said to him, "Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together." Now, these passages in verses thirty-four through thirty-six have been quoted a lot, and a lot of times they're quoted with the idea of the rapture. And the rapture is where Jesus Christ comes back to earth, takes out the believers. And what we teach and believe out here, we're a pre-tribulation church. We believe that Jesus comes back and takes the church out, those that are saved, born again, takes them out before the tribulation happens. Second coming is a different event where Jesus comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and he comes and he judges and rules and reigns then. And that's the second coming. The reason I bring this up is because this is a point in the Bible where we have to talk about application versus interpretation. Now, we go through Jeremiah on Wednesday nights. And as we go through Jeremiah, we're taking the things that Jeremiah says and we apply them to our lives. The interpretation of what Jeremiah says works for Israel 4,000 years ago. So when Jeremiah is talking about the Babylonians encircling Jerusalem and the walls and not letting the Babylonians fear, be afraid of them, and trust in the Lord, we take that and we apply that to our lives saying, okay, what is encircling you and, and what is causing you to fear, trust the Lord? That's the application. We're not literally interpreting that when I go home, a Babylonian army has encircled my house. That's the interpretation. The application of verses 34 through 36 works well for the rapture. This sudden, one's gone, one's left. That application works well. The interpretation of verses 34 through 36, the context of it, is dealing with this idea of the suddenness of judgment that comes. The sudden idea that when God says it's time to be judged, it's time to be judged. So therefore, we need to be ready to not linger. We need to be ready to let go of our lifestyle. We need to be ready to say, Lord, I'm all yours all the time. Call me on what you want me to do. I am there to serve you. It goes back to verse 33. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Simple question. Have you truly lost your life? And I don't mean just, I've given my life over to the Lord. Amen. I'm saying, what about this? I've given everything over. It's no longer me. My plans, my dreams, my visions, my wants, my desires, now all go through the filter of the Lord. And I trust that He will lead me and guide me down the path He wants me to. And as James 4 says, I'm just a vapor. And I trust that the Lord will lead me and guide me. And then putting this all full circle, I believe that the end is coming. But I also believe the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, which preaches all truth to me. And so therefore, I will not be dissuaded. I will not be deceived. And I will be a light and a witness in everything I say. The purpose of verses 20 through 37 is Jesus basically saying, warning. The end is coming. Are you prepared? Are you ready? The people in Noah's time, the people in Lot's time, just continued in life like life was fine and normal. 
There needs to be an urgency in what we do, redeeming the time, making the most of every opportunity, because we as believers know what's going to happen, and that should spur us on in how we live and how we act and what we do, because we care and we want to be a light and a witness in all that we say and all that we do. If the youth want to come forward here for the final song.